All right. Turn to Acts 14. Now, we looked at the book of Revelation last year. It's, so it's a, it's a book that we've looked at, we've gone through, but when necessary, I feel that there might be times to point out Revelation-like stuff that's happening in the culture and happening around us. And, and so something's been brought to my attention that I think I need to pass on to you. ABC News just reported that there's a new website <laughs> offering first-of-its-kind service. And the first-of-its-kind service is this, is sending emails to your unbelieving family and friends after you've been whisked away by God in the rapture. So when you've been whisked away, you can have the service set up that will send to your closest friends and family that are unbelievers at the time, a capacity, I think, of about 63 emails will be sent out to them of a letter that you compose that they'll hold for you and add in the addresses and send them out after the rapture occurs. Now, ABC News reported this, said it's the first of its kind service. It's kind of sweeping some particular areas of, uh, of the church. Well, my brother Pete, who's the RUF campus minister here at Baylor University, he drew my attention to this ABC News report, and he gave me a link to it. So I went and visited it, read all about it, and then I sent him this email. I've arranged an email to be sent to you after I am raptured. Yeah. Now, this is going to be our last sermon in Acts for a while. You might think of it like this. Our family's going on a mini rapture. We're going on a vacation. We're going to be gone for a while. So this is going to be our last sermon in Acts for a while. Uh, we might pick up before everyone gets back from their summer travels and before Baylor comes back and before we get started at the semester, uh, we might do... A, we might finish out the first missionary journey, go into chapter 14, the end of chapter 14, possibly get into the Jerusalem Council at 15, uh, just to kind of get us ready for what we'll do then in the fall. What in the fall, here's the preaching plan. For the school year, what I'm looking to do at this point is in the fall, preach on Genesis 1 through 11. Then in the spring, either come back to Paul's second missionary journey or pick up the book of Galatians, or maybe do a section or a series in Hebrews, or even drop into the Gospel of Mark. But this is the plan. So what I'd like for you to think about and begin to pray about, even now for me as I go back on the summer break, is that you all would begin to start reading and thinking and meditating on Genesis 1-11. through And for you... Nerds out there, I'll put together a book list for you that you might want to read some books to get ready for Genesis 1 through 11. But what I want to put in your mind and your heart right now for the fall is this, is that Genesis 1 through 11 is considered the spring from which the rest of the Bible flows out of. You want to start thinking of Genesis 1 through 11 as a mini Bible. It contains the seed from which the rest of the Bible grows out of. Now, when we go to, if we look at Washington and we look at Hollywood and we look at Waco and we look at the church at large and we look at our own lives, we all struggle, all these areas are struggling with very foundational questions in life. 
Now, some of you are struggling with foundational questions of life intellectually, but others of you aren't struggling with those foundational questions intellectually. But all of us struggle at some level with these foundational questions of life experientially. Deep down in the driving forces of your soul, questions like, who am I? How do I become myself? Who is me? Are asked and are driving you, whether you realize it or not. Questions about not only who are we, but why are we here? Questions about, well, what's the What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with my marriage? What's wrong with my relationships? What's wrong with me? Is there anything wrong? Is this is the way it's supposed to be? Those drive and move your soul. Also, if there is something wrong with the world, what's the solution? And then if I get the solution, how much of the solution can I expect in this life? Because there's lots of theories and lots of teaching that seem to give you, you could expect a lot. So we're going to tackle those questions because what Genesis 1 through 11 does is that Genesis 1 through 11 answers these questions, not just in an intellectual way, but in a deeply personal, a profoundly moving and transforming and cosmic way. It's an incredible, incredible set of chapters. So that's what we're going to jump into when we get back here in the fall. We'll probably get started whenever the summer officially ends and everyone's back in town. And that's usually in mid... When does Baylor get back in town? What is it, August what? 20-something. So that's where we're going to be. From the rapture, boy. It's 20-something. Now... I want you to be praying in preparation. I want you to be praying for yourself, for your family, for Waco. And also know that during this fall time, we'll have special Sunday night seminars. In other words, we're going to tackle the different views of creation, the 24-hour view, the day-age view, the framework view. All the views that are acceptable for ordination in the PCA, we'll look at those and we'll look at some views outside of it so you can get an idea of what's going on there. Certainly we'll, we'll tackle hot button issues and cultural issues like science and the Bible and evolution in the Bible and, and all the doubts that circle the flood. We'll hit some of those things, but we're not going to do them like a lecture or a class here. We'll just say, you know what, I know I have to study all that stuff and I'm not going to give you everything on Sunday. Because the sermon's a little different. The sermon's an event. The sermon is Jesus showing up. And change happening on the spot. The lecture, educational type stuff we'll do on a Sunday evening. And you can ask me what my view of creation is. And I'll be happy to tell you. Okay? All right, let's move to our text at hand. Let's stand to read it together. It's Acts chapter 14, 1 through 7. Oh, when we get to 3, I'll ask us to read it together. You ready? Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. Now that word, entered together, most translations tend to think of it's, it's, as they, it's, it's a repetitive thing of what they just did at Antioch Pisidian. In other words, Luke wants you to begin to see a pattern on Paul's first missionary journey at Antioch Pisidian, and now here... 
It's a familiar pattern. They go to a synagogue, they preach, and then there are these responses. Okay, here we go. They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Four, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Those that we know about, those that we don't. We thank you that we live in your grace. And we live by your grace. And so, Lord, now we ask because of your grace, because you have bound yourself to us, faithfully, loyally, in Christ. Give word and power to all of us to hear. Give the Holy Spirit to illuminate and enlighten and enliven. O King of glory, Prince of peace, unleash heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there is an ancient writing that goes all the way back to the second century, and it's, it's actually a resident of this town, Iconium, and this resident's description of Paul. In other words, Paul had an impact on this person, and this person wrote a description of Paul. Now, the second century is around the 100s, 150 A.D., to kind of give you an idea of where to place it. The Gospel of John was written probably no later than 90 A.D., So you've got maybe a hundred years later an early writing and document that if it's accurate, it's given the most popular and driving description of Paul throughout church history. Okay? Now, I'm going to read it. And as I read it, I want you to kind of put yourself first in Iconium. So you've got to picture Iconium. Iconium's 3,300, 700. 3,300, I think, and 70 feet above sea level. It's a plateau. There's not a lot of trees, not a lot of water. It's cold in temperature. And this plateau, though, overlooks central Turkey. The very fertile plains of central Turkey where rivers and streams cut in, where it's lush and it's fertile and there's growth and Lots of life and lots of liveliness. But this area in Iconium sits on a plateau and it's also isolated. It's the ruling and the cultural center of central Turkey and it's isolated from the Roman influence. In fact, these folks are embedded in Greek culture and they've pridefully resisted the Roman way of life. Because they are kind of isolated. They hung there. Now... We know that Paul and Barnabas were up at Pisidian of Antioch, which is more on the eastern part 
of Turkey, and they make their way kind of south a little bit. I think it's about 80 miles south central to Iconium, to the place where we're at right now. All right? Now, in your mind's eye, you're the Iconian resident who sees Paul. You ready? Okay, here we go. He's small in height is the first description of him. Bald-headed, the second. Crooked legs. He's bow-legged. Okay? Well-built. Paul worked out, did his push-ups. His eyebrows met. (laughs) He had the unibrow. So Paul was not a metrosexual. He didn't get these things plucked. He didn't get his nails done, his toes done. He had a somewhat hooked nose, probably because it was broken a time or two. And then when you put in the, the rods and the rocks and the wrecks and the regular beatings he got in life, I bet it bent even more. He was full of friendliness. This is my favorite description of him. I mean, he's full of friendliness. Can you see his quick grin? Can you see these warm, open eyes? Can you see what's written all over his body language? Approachability. Warm and friendly. Open and outward. And then here's the final description. He appeared like a man, and now he has the face of an angel. The face of an angel. Ah, come on. The dude's indulging himself in hyperbole. He didn't have the face of an angel. He's flesh and blood. And we know when we read the rest of the book, he left a lot of it in a lot of places. Oh, he must be a spiritual romantic then. You know, he doesn't like the earthly stuff. He doesn't like the mundane and the normal stuff down here. He's in the heavenly realm. Or maybe the guy at Iconium was a a Wesleyan perfectionist. You know, somehow Paul has attained what none of us can attain, and that's the state of perfection, some sinless state, some higher plane of living with God. Maybe that's what the description's about. Or maybe the description's about, you know, this guy was codependent on Paul. He was unhealthily clinging to Paul, addicted to Paul's approval. He was like an angel. Maybe it's just improper exaltation of Paul putting Paul on a pedestal, putting him above who he really is. We never do that today, do we? Or maybe it's just a man trying to say, that man changed my life. In the most deep and profound ways imaginable. He appeared like a man And now he's like an angel to me. Those of you who are committed to Christ will not be surprised by the wide-angle view of Acts 14, 1 through 7, what the wide-angle view gives you. And that's called gospel impact, right? 
The wide view here is that the gospel, it even ends. I mean, look at verse 7. They continue to preach the gospel. The whole, the whole way the missionary journey started was preaching the gospel. And now he's in Pisidian and Antioch preaching the gospel. We get this incredible sermon about the gospel. And now we see a response and they shake the dust off their shoes and they move on to the next town and they're preaching the gospel. The pattern's real clear. And those of us who are committed to Christ, we get that stuff. We get gospel impact. We get the reality that the gospel is the power of God for our salvation. We get that. We get that in the gospel, God unleashes himself upon people in place. That he breaks in, he, he divinely intrudes with his goodness and his glory and his grace and his divine forgiveness and his own righteousness In a changed life, he breaks in with the kingdom of God. New creation comes. We get that stuff. I mean, we saw it in Paul. Remember when the gospel was unleashed on Paul, what happened? It was was the appearance of the risen Jesus. And his appearance was like, like the shining of the sun, brighter than noonday. And it knocked Paul off his horse. It pushed his face into the dirt. It blinded the rest of his companions. And it drove God's love and his grace into his hard heart, and he was never the same. We get that. And by the time we get to Iconium, if you're an original reader, you can't wait. You've been prepared for 13 chapters. What will this gospel do now, kids, if this is you, if this was kind of put in your terms, it would be like this. If you were, if you were an original reader, you would get to Iconium much like with the expectation, the alertness, and the intensity, much like, kids, the next level of Call of Duty 4 on Xbox 360. I mean, it's complete anticipation, expectation. It's complete fixation. And what will the gospel do? We all get that. So most of us don't need to be convinced of the gospel impact or the wide-angled view of this text. In other words, the point, the driving point, the wide point here is the gospel impacts. Now, sure, we need to be refreshed in it. We need to be revived in it. We need to be continually encouraged in it. But what we neglect most of the time and we forget and we ignore is not the gospel impact, but your impact. You impact people in place, period. Most of us go through our life thinking we're being impacted by people and place, period. That person does this to me. My situation, if you only understood it. And this text says, in a narrow way, the point is, you impact always people and place. Whether you realize it or not, whether you want to or not, whether you feel like it or not, 
Your impact is inescapable. So what the point that we're going to look at in the rest of our time together is just that. Your impact in people and place. What is it? The question is not are you or will you. The question is what is your impact? And there's going to be two things we're going to look at. We're going to look at an ill impact and illuminating impact. And you're saying illuminating impact? What is that? We'll get to what that is. But we need to know we do have an impact on people and place, either in an ill way or in an illuminating way, but we do. And so we're going to explore how this passage helps us see how we have an impact in people and place. And then may this passage move all of us, move all of us towards a, an illuminating impact in a more profound and personal and corporate way. Just not us as individuals, but us as a church. In other words, you individually, you're going to move forward to an illuminating impact. We as a church move forward to a more illuminating impact. That's what this passage is seeking to do. So let's start here by looking at the kind of impact that you're already having. What Luke has done, and by the time we get to this chapter, he has carefully, painstakingly, repetitively laid out a clear pattern that he wants you to see. And the pattern that's been laid out that he wants you to see is designed to help you see in a more up-close and personal way the kind of impact you're having in people and place. Okay? The first place this pattern started was with the crucifixion of Jesus. You're thinking, great. What happened at the crucifixion of Jesus is basically summed up by the Swiss... Is it Swiss? Yes, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth when he said it was the church, not the world, that crucified Jesus. In Acts 2, Peter's sermon, he tells us and he shows us that it's the lead with the law folks, it's the religious folks, it's the Bible-believing folks, it's the church folks, it's the spiritual performance folks that killed Jesus. The other pattern that starts there, but he wants you to continue, is he wants you to see John and Peter's continual confrontation with the religious leaders. It begins with their arrest. I mean, it begins with their accusations against them, then leads to arrest. And what is it all about? Why are they being accused? Why are they being arrested? Because they're believed to be anti-Israel people, anti-law people, people who aren't driven by spiritual performance. He wants you to see that pattern. They're driven by something else. And that's what's led to their confrontations. Also, he wants you to see Saul's passionate persecution of the early church. Remember, he highlights Saul. He wants you to see that he's the Pharisee of Pharisees. If there's a guy that leads with the law par excellence, it's him. He's so driven by spiritual performance, he will snuff out anyone that's anti it. And he hunts them down. And it's on his way to hunt them down that grace breaks through to him. He wants you to see that. The next part is he wants you to see Stephen stoning. Stephen stoning. Who is he being stoned by? People who lead with the law. People who are driven by spiritual performance. He also wants you to see the circumcision party and 
Acts 10, and then it's going to show up again in Acts 15. The circumcision party are people that lead with the law, people that are driven by spiritual performance. And what was their problem in Acts 10? They didn't like that the Gentiles were getting sheer grace. No, that can't be. In Acts 15, and then Paul even writes about it in Galatians, they're still stuck on it. No, 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 they must be circumcised. They must be driven by the law. They must lead with the law. And then the last pattern that's real clear, and then we're going to summarize what all we just said is this. Every sermon preached in Acts is responded severely by religious people. Lead with the law, people. Okay, here's the, here's the pattern. Hearts driven by spiritual performance have an ill impact on people in place. Okay? Now, he wants us to get a little closer. And what he wants us to do in 14 is that he's now kind of, he's, he's giving you a magnifying glass. He's, he's just shown you the pattern. And now we get to 14 and he blows it up a little bit and he says, now take a look. And the purpose of him saying, now take a look, is not so that we live by spiritual performance and say, look at them. But that we consider the driving elements of our own hearts while we look at it. In other words, he actually wants you to take a look at what drives who you are by looking at this passage. He wants you to consider where your driving heart, trust, and worship is. He wants you to consider what your driving identity is. He wants you to consider what your foundational and fundamental happiness and comfort and peace is. And the way he's going to do it is this. He wants you to see, if you build your life around your spiritual performance, he wants to show you this is what it does to you. Okay? The first thing it does to you is you lose yourself. I want you to look at verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. This is the first time unbelieving Jews is mentioned in Acts. First time. First time an identity is fixed to this group of people. And this group of people is summarized as unbelieving Jews. So what are they not believing? Well, the answer is in verse 1. There's a sermon that was preached that had a great effect. We get a sample of that sermon back in 13, the early part of 13, when we were at Pisidian Antioch, and we got that whole chapter, 40-something verses of that sermon. Remember what the central content of that sermon was? Jesus' performance. And the grace that results. Explicitly, he tells us what they did not believe in verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. So what's happening here is that the unbelieving, the identity, the driving heart structure for these folks was they didn't build their lives around grace. Now, the theme of the Bible is... When you're building your life around grace, you find yourself. The whole theme of the Bible is building your life around grace is how you actually get yourself secure. That's how you actually find who you are. You become who you are. 
You gain a foundational, fundamental happiness in life in the grace of God. Okay? And so the grace of God is our deepest identity and where we become put back together again. And we find a true sense of divine acceptance and approval and love. You all of a sudden become okay. If you don't build your life around the grace of God, you lose yourself. You're unstable in your identity. Okay? So what happens here? What happens to you next? Well, when you're unstable in who you are, you either look up to people or you look down to people. Because if your life is built around your spiritual performance, depending upon how your performance goes, the person's performance goes, you either look up or you look down, you're unstable. You're either inferior or superior, you're unstable. You lost yourself. And when that happens, it leads to an ill impact. Because now you treat others according to being inferior, inferior, or superior. Look at verse 2. They stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers, against the brothers. Literally, this says to stir up, literally, it means to make someone think badly of another. It's to tear them down. It's to poison is to put in wrong thinking about who that person is so that you distrust them. You poison them. When your life is being built around your spiritual performance, you lose yourself. You have an insecure identity. You're either seeing yourself superior or inferior. Which leads to you treating another person in an ill way. Okay? In fact, watch how the progression goes here. Look at verse 5. It just gets worse. First, it starts with a little anger, which we saw even in the early parts of 13, leading to some hostility and hatred. And then it comes into outright actions. It starts breaking itself off. I mean, if you go to verse 4, it leads to, it's almost like there's this anger. Look at the progression. There's this anger and this hatred. And then verse 4, it leads to separation and exclusion. The whole town was divided. Do you see that? The whole city was divided. Some going to the spiritually performing people. Other folks following the apostles in a whole other way. This is a church split of the most royal kind. And then when you get to separation and division, it's easy now to abuse and oppress. Verse 5, what happened? Mistreat them. Stone them. Now, some of you are quietly thinking, this is why I despise religion. Thanks, you helped me a lot this morning. I've always thought of religion as being intolerant. I've always thought of religion as being oppressive. It's only given us the Inquisition and the Crusades. My answer to you is, you're right. I agree with you. Religion, spiritual performance, always leads to an ill impact upon people and place. 
always. But what I want to say to you is true Christianity, a true reading of the Bible, the true and living God, true discipleship is not driven by religion or spiritual performance. It's driven by the performance of another. It's driven by grace. Now, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but I just want to put that in your ear right now. Okay? And then I just want to push back on you a little bit when you're thinking this way. I want to push back on a little bit because if you're not building your life around grace, and if you're not building your life around spiritual performance, it doesn't mean you're not building your life around another performance. Just because it's not spiritual. You can build your life around your career. You can build your life around your parents' approval. You can build your life around being the best homemaker and all-natural cooker and whatever. You can build your life around anything. The point is, you've got to perform to keep it, though. If you're not a good mom, if you don't perform, you die. If you're not successful and you're not where you thought you would be when you're 43 like I am, and you build your life on something, maybe it's not being the best teacher and being the best preacher. Maybe it's just being the best hunter or being the most popular and pride in my race. But I got to perform to keep it. And if I don't perform or someone performs better, I'm either superior or inferior. I lose myself. So just because we're not building our life around spiritual performance or we're not building our lives around the grace of God, you are building your life around some other performance. Okay? All right. Let's look at the other impact that's going on here. And this is the exciting part of the text. The other impact that's going on here tells us you can have another kind of impact. You don't have to have an impact on people in place. There's another kind of impact in this passage, and you can have it in your home. There's another kind of impact in this place. And you can have it at your job. And you can have it amidst your loneliness. And you can have it amidst your struggles. You can have another kind of impact. And that's what the point of this passage is pushing us to and wants us to move towards. And I want you to look at it in verse 2 and 3. Look at 2 and 3. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers. Verse 3. So they remained. Oh, you got to love that, brothers and sisters. If you've got any amount of life in you right now, you have to love that. Even if you know you don't have it, you've got to admire that. They're stirring up people. There's animosity and hatred going on there. There's, there's misconstruing and misunderstanding and twisting who these people are. Paul and Barnabas' reputation being dragged through the mud. Anti-Israel, anti-law, anti-God. Going on and on and on. And then what happens? So they remain. They remained. 
I mean, it's like a storm. When anger and abuse comes, it's like a storm on the horizon, and you can, you can see the dark clouds coming. You can see the lightning flashing. You can hear the cracks of thunder. The, the heavens pour, and the rain soaks, and it's cold, and the wind blows, and it's chilling and biting, and it's abrasive. Anger and abuse makes a missionary lonely. Anger and abuse hurts and it hits hard. Anger and abuse, it brings feelings of retaliation and hatred. Anger and abuse, it strikes you to your core. And they remained. Everyone scatters. They remain. Sure, it's a picture. What did they remain in? Preaching boldly grace. I love that. So here it is. Here we have guts, we have courage, we have gallantry, we have heroics on display. Here we have true, genuine care and concern and a loyal love for new believers. I'm not going to leave them. The whole town's against them. Get out of here, Paul and Barnabas. Get out of here. You're in deep trouble. No, I'm not leaving. Loyal love. Genuine concern. Eyes not on themselves. Eyes on the other. Because this is happening, we're staying right here. We're going to preach the gospel to you amidst all of this. So you get rooted and established in the gospel. So that grace drives you. I'm not going anywhere. Do you see that? That's on display. Do you see what's happening? An illuminating impact is on display. Not an ill impact. What I mean by illuminating is that they're calling attention to something and someone else. Their gallantry and their courage and their heroics and this genuine love and care and concern that's being demonstrated towards another person is actually showing Jesus and his grace to them. I mean, look at verse 3b. What's, where is 3b? Let's go to 3. So they remain for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Notice what happens. The Lord, what did the Lord do? The Lord bore witness to the word of his grace. How? Granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Part of the signs and wonders is them. Part of what was revealing who Jesus is was not just the miraculous restoring work of a new creation, probably signs and wonders of healing, like the man that we saw a couple chapters ago, rise and walk, the restoring of a new creation and healing eyes and lame and, and demonic possessions, whatever's going on, probably those are the signs and wonders. But the other sign and wonder is Paul and Barnabas themselves. On display is courage, on display is gallantry, on display is genuine love for the other in the midst of a storm. 
So how did they get this way? Don't miss it. 3B, it's very, very clear. Speaking boldly, here's the prepositional phrase, for the Lord. That's how they got this way. Now, before you skip over that word Lord, you need to recognize that's a title, and that's a title that's given to Jesus. But it's given to Jesus in a very significant way. It's given to Jesus as Lord because he was resurrected and exalted. So what this title means is that Jesus was crowned Lord because of his spotless performance. Jesus is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee will bow. All of creation will be subjected to him because he's the righteous one. Because he obeyed God perfectly. Spotless performance. Perfect performance. And God says, I will raise you and exalt you, your Lord. They had their eyes on the Lord. Their hearts were being built around the performance of another. Their lives and hearts came alive by the grace that that was poured out through that. Courage and strength and enablement in that. Looking at others, not out of spiritual performance, not out of superiority or inferiority, looking up, looking down, but looking level at people and loving them as image bearers of the King. For the Lord did that. So when you build your life around grace, Jesus' performance, not your performance, you find yourself. You become not superior, inferior, who you are. Stable, secure, I'm okay. You become yourself. And when that happens, you look at people and you treat people humbly, boldly, lovingly, respectfully, regardless of what they do to you. Okay? You have an illuminating impact. Now let's wrap it up here. Do you know that Paul wrote a letter to his friends in Iconium later on in his life? Did you know that? I mean, these are dear friends of his. Friendships forged in difficulty are tight. And they stayed, the text said, for a long time. And that ancient writing, that resident was struck by Paul. But you know what? Do you know what that letter's called? That he wrote? Galatians. Now, I want you to read, look at, I want you to take a close look at verse 3 before we read this, this section of the letter in Galatians to his friends in Iconium. Look closely at verse 3 again. Read it to yourself. Get it in your mind. Get the phraseology. Now, I want you to listen to Paul's letter to those people, his friends, in central Turkey, 
Well, the provinces of Galatia, the churches of Galatia, I want you to hear it. Now, here's what he says. Are you so foolish? These are his friends. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Spiritual performance. Did you suffer so many things in vain? Now we have an idea of what they suffered. Don't we? They were, they were hated, despised, mistreated, threatened, abused, separated, excluded. The whole town was against them. Paul says, have you suffered so much in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, and here it is, and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law, spiritual performance, leading with the law, or by hearing with faith? Do you build your life my dear friends, around your spiritual performance or the performance of another. Works, grace. Religious works, irreligious works, or grace. Spiritual performance crept back into the hearts of his friends after he left. Oh, that must have broke his heart. So do not think that we're above it not happening to us. Okay? Now here's what I want you to remember. Here's the sliver of splendor that we're going to leave with. I want you to remember this. Even though you don't remain perfectly in grace, even though I don't remain perfectly in grace, even though you forget about grace in the midst of the argument with your spouse, even though you forget about grace and don't build your life around grace when you're disrespected and mistreated, or when you gain some sort of blessing and you begin to think highly of yourself. We do this all the time. Even when you don't remain in grace, Jesus remained in Iconium to the very end. At the end of the chapter, Paul and Barnabas had to leave. The threats had gotten so great, it would have been foolish. It would have been wasteful for them to have stayed. They were going to be stoned and murdered and killed. And so they left and they went on their way. But there's one who stayed. And there's one who remained and took the full measure of all anger, all hatred, all separation and exclusion, all abuse, all oppression, and the full measure of death because he remained to the end. He didn't leave on the cross. And here's the great news. So you can remain in grace. He remained so you can remain. Now when that gets us, when that lands in our life, you'll have an impact.
you'll have an illuminating impact. Amen.